For the second weekend in a row, the gospel text from Matthew shows Jesus in confrontation mode with the religious authorities. But what is the context for this confrontation? Jesus was in the temple, apparently moving about around the huge courtyards, teaching, and what he taught created a stir, admiration among the people, intense anger among the chief priests and the elders of Israel. Last weekend, we saw how Jesus reminded the religious authorities that the temple existed not only as the only place on earth that the divine presence dwelt, not only as a place for the Jews to worship, but the vehicle God chose to reach out to the non-Jewish world, to the nations, so that they would stream to Jerusalem. But this critical missionary dimension was forgotten. Do we forget that this missionary imperative is something we are all called to as well? But ignorance, arrogance, and sin prevailed despite centuries of prophets warning the people to repent. And so Jesus said in no uncertain terms, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. In today's gospel, Jesus continues to press his case against the religious authorities, the very ones who had the education, the insight to the truth of what Jesus said, but chose not to see it. He used the parable of a king giving a great feast, a wedding banquet for his son. Every Jew who heard that, especially the chief priests and elders, immediately understood that Jesus was using the imagery of the messianic kingdom. The king, God, sent out invitations. The normal custom in Jesus' day was to send a formal invitation to a feast, followed by a second invitation when the feast was ready, that the people should make their way to the banquet hall. The way Jesus structured the parable, the people seemed to have accepted that first invitation, but they rejected the second, and insanely, some became so angry, they killed the messengers, the servants sent by God, the prophets. And what does the king do? Typical of that time period, he retaliates quickly and brutally. He sent troops to kill those who insulted him and burned their city. A prediction of what was going to happen to Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, when the population was butchered by the Romans and the temple was destroyed. The king, however, refused to abandon his feast. And so he sent his servants to invite everyone they encountered. And Jesus has the king use the expression main roads, which the chief priests and elders would have immediately understood to refer to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And by this point, the religious authorities had to be seething. But then there is that very, very curious verse 10. 
The servants went out into the streets and gathered all they found, bad and good alike, and the hall was filled with guests. Now, how are we to understand that? St. Gregory the Great, writing in the 6th century, believed the mixture of bad and good is a reflection of the church until the day of judgment. He said in a sermon, the church is a thorough mix of various offspring. It brings them all to the faith, but does not lead them all to the liberty of spiritual grace successfully by changes in their lives, since their sins prevent it. As long as we are living in this world, we have to proceed along the road of the present age thoroughly mixed together. All are invited to the eternal banquet. Not all, however, will accept the call to conversion of heart. And we hear this spiritual reality, by the way, at the celebration of every Mass. The priest takes the chalice. He's graced to say the words of consecration. Take this, all of you, and drink from it. For this is the chalice of my, the blood of the, an eternal covenant which be poured out for you and for many. For you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why the word many? Why not the word all? You ever wonder about that? Didn't Jesus die for all? Absolutely. Isn't salvation offered to all? Without a doubt. But will all accept the gift of salvation to guide how they will lead their lives? Given that every human being is a moral agent with free will, most likely not. But, and this is the critical point, so long as there is life, no matter how long or short, there's always hope for conversion. Jesus tells us the king finally arrived to the feast, and he saw a man not wearing what he called a wedding garment, and had him bound and thrown into the darkness. St. Augustine, writing in the fourth century, wisely advised that we should see this not as a person, but a class of people. Now, there is no evidence that the Jewish tradition of that era required wedding guests to wear a certain type of garment for a wedding. So why does Jesus incorporate this element in his story? Remember the fundamental principle. So long as there is life, there is hope for conversion of heart. But, once in the wedding banquet, once in the presence of God, one is the sum total of what one chose to become. The time for conversion has ceased to exist because time has ceased to exist. The wedding garment, then, is the garment of the soul, not made of cloth or silk or wool, but the works of love. The genuine faith is always inspiring us to do while we are in this life. 
One's wedding garment can be rich and elaborate by gracing the graces we've been graced with to love and serve others, or one's wedding garment can be little more than soiled, tattered rags because one chose to disgrace the graces one was graced with and focus solely on oneself. It is then completely up to each of us what kind of wedding garment we will have. All are invited to the banquet. All are given the graces needed to weave a garment for the eternal banquet. Some will not accept the invitation. Some will not use the graces they are given. So the mystery that Jesus presents to us is not the scandalous love and generosity of his Father, but the arrogance of human free will that would reject his love. 